Good morning, City Light. How are you guys? Nice. Like Eric said, my name is Doug, and I get to be one of the pastors for our church. And I love what God is doing among us. Just in the last couple of weeks, I've heard stories of a man who prayed out loud for the first time ever. Heard stories of friends who were honest with each other about their past and then discovered fresh hope for their future in Jesus Christ. I've seen literally dozens of people serving behind the scenes. They're cleaning stuff, organizing stuff, and they're doing it with smiles. There is nothing better than seeing real people become more and more like Jesus. See, like, let me tell you, Jesus loves you, and it's very apparent that you love him back. I am honored to get to be a part of what he's doing here. I'd like to start this morning with a question for you. Do you like to argue? Like the back and forth, he said, she said, prove your point arguments. Some of you really like arguments. And chances are you win your arguments, right? You like to hunt them down, track them down, and then shoot them and eat them for lunch. That's how you like your arguments. Others of you are more like me, and you're like, I do not like arguments. Stay away from conflict. It's kind of scary and confusing to me, and words are flying, and reasons, and logic, and all these ways that apparently I'm wrong, or something like that. Like, I am not a good arguer, but I've got to tell you, and I mean this in the nicest of ways, Eric is a good arguer, okay? He really is. Now, he was a political science major, the firstborn in his family, and he knows lots of big vocabulary words, okay? Now, Eric and I don't really argue back and forth a lot, but when we're talking about our church and making decisions, we do talk things out a lot. And here's how it often goes. I go into the conversation thinking we should do plan A. Then Eric asked me a couple of questions. I answered them innocently, and he says, oh, well, in that case, it sounds like you believe we should do plan B. I'm like, what? How did that work out? But here's where it gets really crazy. Right after that, he'll ask me two more questions. I answer those just as innocently, and he says, oh, actually, Doug, in that case, it sounds like you think we should do plan A. I'm like, bro, I just flip-flopped in a matter of seconds just because you're good with big vocabulary words and asking sneaky questions. Eric is a good arguer, which is also one of the reasons why he's a great preacher, right? It works on all of us on Sunday mornings. How about you? Do you like to argue? Like, are you that guy who's just looking for a good argument? Or are you the guy who's like pulling away and trying to avoid all of them? Are you the girl who goes and argues with a tree just to debate your, and to sharpen your debate skills? Or are you the girl who's like, I'm going to agree with everything he says just so I don't have to get into conflict? For all of us, arguments are a fact of life. Whether it's with your boss or your coworkers or your spouse or your neighbor or Aunt Gertrude who always brings up super awkward topics at the family reunion, arguments are a fact of life for us. And they were also a fact of life for Jesus. This morning, we're looking at a scene in the life of Jesus where he is in an argument with some religious leaders. These religious leaders, they're mad at Jesus, they don't like him, they don't trust him, so they get into an argument, and not surprisingly, they lose their argument with Jesus. But I think it's crucial for us to look at this snapshot of Jesus' life because we've all had our moments where we disagree with Jesus. 
Some of us have massive, big disagreements with Jesus, and that actually holds us back from becoming one of his followers. Others of us, we have been a follower of Jesus for many years, but along those years, we've kind of gotten beat up and nicked up and bruised up, and every once in a while, we just feel like Jesus needs to hear a little piece of our mind so it can help us feel a little bit better. We've all had arguments with Jesus, and in John chapter 8, we're brought into this argument between Jesus and some Pharisees, these religious leaders. So let me kind of set the scene, give you the setup. Jesus, along with thousands of other people, are all in Jerusalem, the big city at the time. And they're there. They are partying. They're celebrating. They're feasting. They're doing this thing called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. So in the middle of that big crowd, Jesus stands up. And in John 8, verse 12, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. The context clues to the story tell us that when Jesus says this, he is most likely surrounded by lampstands and torches at night. There's blazing lights all around him. So Jesus kind of takes advantage of this moment and he draws all the attention to himself saying, I am the light. He was the light for those people at the feast at the time, but he was also the light of the whole world. He's local and he is global. He's saying, hey, I will be your light right here, right now, but also I'm going to be the light for the whole world throughout history. Jesus is saying, take all the scope of planet earth, all the bright lights, shine them together, and I will still overshadow them and outshine them. Jesus is talking about himself. And I don't know if you've noticed, but the last couple chapters, John 7 and John 8 at the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus keeps talking about himself a lot. In John 7, he's like, hey, come to me if you're thirsty. I'll give you drink, and out of you will flow rivers of living water. They were all drinking at the time. He's like, oh, I'm the better drink. And now he's going, hey, you see all these lights? I'm the better light. He keeps talking about himself. And sometimes when people keep talking about themselves, it begins to irritate you, especially if you don't like them. Have you ever been around someone who talks about themselves all the time? Like they're always boasting of their skills or their abilities. It's that guy who always has to one-up you after you just told your best story, right? Or it's that gal who looks better than you and she makes sure that you know it or that she's always this perfect mom who never gets frustrated with her children. These people will take every conversation and put themselves in the center of it. Every topic is an opportunity for them to tell you that they're kind of a big deal, right? What is it like to be around those people? What does it feel like? Not good. It's kind of icky and awkward. At first, you're like, wow, this is a terrific human being. But then after the fifth time that he one-ups your story or she tells you how she's never gotten upset with her kids ever, you're like, I'm going to need to find a new friend, (laughs) right? Like, sometimes I'll do this sarcastically just to see how people respond. They're like, Doug, are you a good singer? Yep, the best I know of. (laughs) Doug, do you lift weights? Yeah, I'm one of the strongest guys I know, right? And how do people respond? They laugh at me like you're doing, right? Because they know that I'm crazy. But when Jesus is talking about himself here, he isn't crazy. He's telling the truth about himself. And when he tells the truth about himself, it drives these religious leaders crazy. They get sick and tired of hearing about Jesus this and Jesus that, so they fire back at him with three arguments. 
And we're going to track through those arguments. And I just want to ask you, as we go through these arguments, see if you've ever used one of these arguments on Jesus. Or maybe you're using one right now. Argument number one that these religious leaders bring to Jesus is this. Jesus, and just so you know, there's actually um, blanks in your notes if you want to follow along. Jesus, I don't trust you. Jesus, I don't trust you. Here's how they say it in John 8, verse 13. The Pharisee said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself, and your testimony is not true. In other words, they're saying, we can't trust you, Jesus. You just keep talking about yourself, and we can't trust that. You need another witness. In the Old Testament law, it was clear that the um, validity, the truth of any statement needed to be supported by at least two witnesses for it to hold up in the court of law. And so these guys are going, Jesus, you're your only witness. Who's got your back? Who's going to back you up? Now, I know this is an argument between Jesus and some religious leaders that happened 2,000 years ago, but we still do this today, don't we? Chances are, like the religious leaders, you've heard some things about Jesus. Whether you've been following him for many years or you're just beginning to discover what he claimed and what he taught about himself, you've heard some things about Jesus. You've probably heard that he's the savior of the world, that he claimed to be God, that Jesus loves you and he died on the cross for your sins. And many of us, we've heard that, but sometimes our pushback to Jesus is, yeah, but can I trust you when you say that? All this stuff that I hear from other people about you, all these things that you say about yourself in your Bible, I hear it, Jesus, but why should I trust you? I don't know if I can trust you. I had this argument with Jesus. It was about a year and a half, two years ago, when Jesus called our family to move out of Omaha and move into Council Bluffs to plant this church. Now, when he called us to do that, I knew some things about Jesus. I knew that Jesus would provide for our family. I knew that Jesus would never leave me nor forsake me. I knew that he promised to build his church. I knew that he promised to give us his kingdom, but I also knew some other things. I knew that we had four kids and probably more on the way. I knew that they had hungry bellies and they would prefer to put food in those bellies. I knew that my wife prefers to live with a roof over her head. And I knew that I had never done this church planting thing before. So when it got downright personal and Jesus called us to plant this church, my honest response was, Jesus, I don't know if I can trust you. Have you ever been there? When he's called you to treat your spouse differently? Whenever he's asked you to love your neighbor who doesn't exactly love you back? When he tells you to give away that money that you worked so hard for? When he invites you out of your comfort zone, Jesus, I don't know if I can trust you. We've all been there, and so it isn't just the Pharisees, these religious leaders who need to hear Jesus' response. We need to hear it too. And here's how Jesus responds in John 8, verse 14. He says, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. That is Jesus speak for this. Even if I am the only one who bears witness about me, that's okay. It's still true because I'm from heaven. I'm divine. I am eternal. And yeah, that kind of counts for something, you know? Jesus is rolling out his resume here. He's saying, hey, check out my resume. This is who I am. 
In my case, it'd be like Jesus going, okay, Doug, you have some doubts. You don't know if you can trust me when I call you to plant this church thing. Then let's compare resumes. Okay, Doug, let's look at your resume. Uh, You got a degree with the brain I gave you. Um, You held down a job with the work ethic I gave you. And you read a couple books on church planting. Good stuff. Now let's look at my resume. Okay, I oversaw all of creation. I've been around forever. I've ruled all of heaven. And then I stepped down out of heaven so that I can identify with you and understand what you're going through. Yep, I think you can trust me right? Like when you compare your resume to Jesus's resume, who's going to win? Jesus every single time. So when we come to him with the question, Jesus, can I trust you? The answer is yes, you can trust him. You can trust him. But Jesus isn't done with his side of the argument. He says, yes, check out my resume. But he goes on in verse 18 and he says, I am the one who bears witness about myself. Yeah, I am talking about myself. And the Father who sent me bears witness about me. So Jesus points to his own resume and he points to God. He's saying, actually, I do have two witnesses, me and God Almighty. So if you don't trust me, then go to God. He will tell you. And maybe this morning we need to hear this in a fresh way, City Light. Listen, we don't trust and follow Jesus because he's cool. And he gets more customers for our business or more followers on Instagram. We trust and we follow Jesus because God Almighty, God the Father, has put his stamp of approval on one and only one, Jesus Christ. There are not many different roads to God. There are not many different gods, and we get to pick and choose our favorites. God has not distributed his approval to five different major world religions. God the Father has said he's given his witness, his seal, and his approval to one and only one, Jesus Christ. So at the end of the day, we trust Jesus because God trusts Jesus. Lean in. Just listen to this, guys. This is going to sound so simple, but it's true. You can trust Jesus. His resume is better than yours, and he has the full backing of God Almighty. So what is it that you're holding onto in your hands because you think that he isn't smart enough or good enough or strong enough to handle it? God himself is inviting you to give that to Jesus. Don't hold on to it any longer. Don't grin and grunt and grit and bear it any further. You can release that and give it over to Jesus and find him trustworthy. You can trust Jesus. So the Pharisees come. These religious leaders have their first argument. Jesus, we don't trust you. Jesus responds to that, and they don't like his response. It only infuriates them and makes them more mad. So they do what any of us would do when logic doesn't work in our argument, right? They start insulting him. They start cutting him down and throwing jabs at him, which leads to argument number two. I'd say it this way, Jesus, I don't like you. (laughs) Right? Jesus, I don't like you. Here's how the religious leaders say in verse 19. They said to him, therefore... Where is your father? Now, this was a low blow, okay? Everybody knew about Jesus's dad's situation. His mom was a virgin, or so they all said, right? So Jesus and his family were often made fun of for this whole virgin birth thing, and now the religious leaders are going old school, middle school, locker room humor, and essentially saying, hey, Jesus, who's your daddy? 
And then they wait for everybody to stop laughing before they say, oh, Doyle rules, right? Now, Jesus is actually mature about this whole thing, and he just responds to them, and he says, you have no idea what you're saying. It's actually kind of comical. You don't know what you're talking about, and where I'm going, you can't come with me. Jesus is talking about him going back to heaven to be with the Father, He's telling these religious leaders, the most esteemed and appreciated people of the day, these were the pastors and church planners of the day, he's telling them that they are not going to be going with him to heaven to be with the Father. But they totally miss it, and they just cut right to their next insult. Verse 22, they say, will he kill himself? Right now, they're not even talking to Jesus anymore. They're talking to the crowd, getting them inside, and they're like, Well, will he kill himself since he says, where I am going, you cannot come? They're speculating that Jesus will commit suicide. Because in that time, the Jewish teachers taught that the deepest, darkest, worst pit of hell was reserved for people who committed suicide. So these religious leaders are saying that Jesus definitely won't be in heaven, but he doesn't even deserve to be in hell. He deserves to be in the worst of hell. I mean, it's a terrible insult. It's degrading, dehumanizing. It is a childish and devilish way to jab a knife into the side of Jesus in front of everybody so that they can all laugh along with them. And I feel like now I should probably pause and acknowledge that what these religious leaders did to Jesus is still done to people today. It still happens. Oh, you did that? God can't love you if you've done that. How have you ever, how could you ever possibly do that? Religious leaders and church leaders say things like that far too often. They'll say things like, oh, and you know, some sins will damn you straight to hell, but there's other sins that maybe you can make up for and atone for them this side of eternity. It is all lies, it is all religion, and it is all rooted in the desire to control people. The Bible actually teaches that all sin is sin. All sin is evil. All sin requires the blood of Jesus and the blood of Jesus alone to atone for it. And all of us have sinned. That's why Jesus died for us, to forgive us of those sins, all different kinds of those sins. It is childish and devilish when church leaders make up stuff that the Bible never says just so you will feel bad enough to not go do it again. And if that's ever happened to you, I want to apologize. I'm sorry. It was wrong. And it was lies. The truth is, we all come to Jesus as broken sinners, and he runs to us with exploding love, eager to forgive us of our past, adopt us as his chosen and precious children, and transform us into his image. That's the truth, and that's kind of an aside. Close parentheses. Back to the story. These religious leaders are throwing their insults and cutdowns at Jesus. And as bad as it sounds, I think that sometimes we do the same. Now, we may not actually say the mean words out loud to Jesus. You may have never called him a cotton-headed ninny-muggins, right? But we do throw our fits, don't we? We do throw our hands up in the air. We rail against him. We get mad at him. We give him a piece of our mind, or we just give him the silent treatment. Like this time last year, last 
July was maybe the most stressful month of my life ever. We had sold our house in Omaha. We had bought a fixer-upper house over here in Council Bluffs, but we were living with Whitney's parents at the time, and we thought that Whitney was pregnant with twins due at the end of July, okay? So every single morning, I am out the door of her parents by 7 a.m., going to the fixer-upper. Trust me, I am no chip gains, okay? Not even close. And I'm out there, like, hitting the hammer on my thumb two hours until 9 a.m., come to this work, work till 5 p.m., go back out there till 10 p.m., and then stumble home around 10 p.m. to go to sleep in Whitney's parents' house. And trust me, I love her mom and dad, but they're still in-laws, okay, if you know what I'm talking about. I love them forever. Love them forever, but it was stressful, okay? Do you, sorry, Dave and Denise, wherever you are, I love you guys forever, okay? They're part of our church. Anyways, yeah. Okay, okay, I'll brag on Whitney's dad. We went to St. Louis for a week, and we came back, and there were three super cool tree swings hanging from really tall trees in our yard, okay? I love them. They're awesome people, but they were still in-laws. Okay, anyways, here's what was going through my head at the time. Jesus, you got us into this mess. Jesus, this is your fault. You told us to do this. You told us to buy this house and plant this church. It's your fault that we're having twins. And I really don't like do-it-yourself projects anyway. Jesus, I know I'm supposed to love you, but right now I don't really like you. I threw a fit. And I don't think those words actually came out of my mouth, but those were the words of the song that was stuck on repeat in the soundtrack of my heart. We've all been at a place in our lives when with the sincerity and the bravado of a four-year-old temper tantrum, we've said, Jesus, I don't like you. So how does Jesus respond In verse 23, first of all, he responds by reminding us that we are from below. We are small. He says, I'm from above. You are of this world. We don't have heaven's perspective. In my case, after about a month of giving Jesus the silent treatment, we moved into that fixer-upper house. It was livable. And two days after that, my wife gave birth to one really big baby boy. It never was twins. It was one all along. And many of you, you rushed in and you pitched in to get us into that house on time. In one of the most stressful months of my life, I experienced an avalanche of the love of Jesus through all of you. And God Almighty humbled me. All along, he had heaven's perspective, and I had my little, tiny, earthly perspective. That's how Jesus responds when we're throwing a fit. But he continues, and he has one other thing to say. And just so you know, this is kind of blunt of Jesus. He's really honest, and in verse 24, he says that if we stay in that place of anger towards him, throwing that fit, then we just might die there. In our sins, throwing our fit, casting our stones. So Jesus is honest here, even blunt. And I don't think he's so much threatening us or pointing the finger at us as he's just trying to help our hearts see the dangerous place that we can get to. He wants us to see the danger so that we will run from the danger. 
If you are mad at Jesus, if you are blaming him for the tough stuff and the rough stuff in your life, if you would rather call him names than call upon his name, then you have walked into a danger zone. It is a dangerous spot. And I know that among City Light, we love to celebrate and clap our hands and dish out the encouragement, but we also have to be honest with the words of Scripture. We have to deal with the raw words of Jesus. So let me say this. If you are mad at Jesus, please deal with it. If you have bitterness in your heart towards Jesus, please don't let it stay there. Talk to a, Christ, uh, a trusted Christian friend. Talk to your city group or city group leader or a pastor. Bring that out. Don't hold on to it any longer. Don't feed it. Don't foster it. Instead of running from Jesus, turn and run to Jesus. Instead of shaking your fist at him, open your hands to him. And instead of turning your back to him, bow your knee to Jesus. He is for you. Believe that he is for you. Some of the toughest and roughest moments of your life are Jesus' way of saying, I am here in the middle of it. I'm with you and I love you. So the Pharisees are in this argument and their first two arguments haven't gone so well for them, right? Jesus, I don't trust you. Jesus, I don't like you. And Jesus has really good responses to both of those. So finally, they break down. And in John 8, verse 25, It says this, so they said to him, who are you? Who are you? In other words, argument number three is this, Jesus, I don't know you. Jesus, I don't know you. These religious leaders are like, Jesus, who are you? And Jesus says, I've been telling you all along. I've been telling you that I'm from the Father. I've told you that I'm from heaven. I've told you that I'm divine, the Son of God, the Messiah who has come to rescue and to rule. I've told you all of that. And then Jesus just drops the mic in verse 28. Check this out. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, and Son of Man is one of Jesus' favorite references for himself. So he's saying, When you've lifted me up, Jesus, then you will know that I am he. In the original language, the word he is not even there. Jesus is just saying, I am. When you put me on the cross, you will know that I am. When they see Jesus on the cross, they'll realize who he is. When they see Jesus on the cross, they will know that he is true and trustworthy. When they see Jesus on the cross, they will know that he is from God and God is with him and God is pleased with him. Without the cross, they'll never get it. But with the cross, maybe, just maybe they'll get it. They'll see Jesus for who he is and trust him for all that they need. Oh, City Light, may this be true among us. When you are tempted to not trust Jesus, then go to the cross See Jesus there, hanging, bloodied, and beaten, and find him worthy of all your trust. Whenever you are thinking too highly of your own resume, then go to the cross. See Jesus there, finishing all the work that the Father has given him, and find him greater than your pride. 
When you're tempted to be the center of your own universe and put yourself on the throne of your own heart, then go to the cross and see Jesus giving up all of his rights, laying down his life and find his humility more attractive than your ability. Whenever you are angry with him and you fault him for the failures and disappointments in your life, go to the cross. See Jesus there, tasting your pain and find him near enough to understand the hurt that you're going through. Whenever you want to rail against his plans for your life and how they're not going well, then go to the cross. See Jesus there forgiving his persecutors, led like a lamb to the slaughter, and let his silence deafen the cries of your heart. And when you just need to know who Jesus is and you want to know what he is like, then go to the cross. There is no greater revelation of Jesus than him dying for your sin. There is no clearer picture of Jesus than him on the cross. There's no other way to truly know Jesus than to know him through the cross. City Light, we all argue with Jesus. One way or another, it comes out, Jesus, I don't trust you. I don't like you. I don't know you. But every argument, every time gets answered at the cross. May our doubts die there and our contempt collapse there and may our questions find answers at the cross. Amen, church? Amen.